I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it is such a joy to be joined today by Amitava Kumar, who is a writer and journalist born in Ara, India, and who grew up in the nearby town of Patna, famous for its corruption, crushing poverty, and delicious mangoes. Kumar is the author of the novel Immigrant Montana, as well as several other books of nonfiction and fiction. He lives in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he's professor of English on the Helen D. Lockwood chair at Vassar College. And his latest novel is called A Time Outside This Time. Welcome. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. I've followed you for a long time. So it's a great honor to it's, be uh, talking to you. Oh, it's an honor for me, too. I, 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 let's start out. And, and this is like way more meta than I than I, I would usually be at first. But let's talk about the word novel. Yes. Um, I, I, I am fascinated that your novel has a bibliography. <laughs> and um, that that novels come from a word meaning news. Yes. Tell but me. also. Of course, the novel coronavirus. And so, uh, of course, the novel coronavirus. <laughs> so we should talk about that. Yes. yes. Um, you know, many years ago, in a review of a book by Jonathan Safran Foer, John Updike wrote in The New Yorker that novels traditionally, and I think he was thinking of the 18th, 19th century, taught people how to behave. They, they taught you how to dance or how to shave. Um, it was like an instruction about how to belong in society. Uh, but at the same time, the novel was also a carrier of news. It was reporting on the world. It was your passport into worldliness, I think. Um, but right now we are faced with a question, you know, we don't learn how to shave or <laughs> learn how to date or how to dance from novels. What do we really learn? I think what we learn is not so much what is the news, which we get from television or on our phones, mm -hmm. 
we learn instead how our ordinary lives interact with the news or how to make sense of the news. For me, I have felt a feeling of frisson when I opened a novel by Olivia Lang and uh, the narrator is getting married and someone takes out their phone and says, Steve Bannon has resigned, <laughs> you know? Um, that with the taste of the cake is the unpleasant taste of Donald Trump, that sort of thing. And reporting, you know, that idea of how the world comes in to your mundane life, how to find an imprint of that on the page. I think that's what novels are doing these days. Mm -hmm. And my novel is yeah. a bit of an investigation into that feeling when the pandemic comes rushing in. Yeah, I, I, and you talk about this a lot in your novel, but I, I feel like this is a theme that I've heard so many times that people, writers of fiction feel like they've been co-opted in their, um, creative lie telling. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the other part. How to write fiction or why write fiction when all, when, when you're surrounded by the fiction called fake news, right? Right. Uh, and I, I was, you know, in the process of writing the book, I was actually struggling with that question. And I don't know whether I really have an answer for it, but I was trying to say, for example, one horror would be succeeded by another horror so quickly, and then by another, that I would forget what had happened on Tuesday to the man <laughs> whose name I had taken down, or to the woman who something terrible happened to her, let's say in central India. And I thought, okay, why don't I make my novel a record of what's happening? So just a chapter on news, you know, the velocity of news. The other thing I was also thinking about was that if there is this galloping sense of news, how to slow it down? Mm -hmm. Because you can't live tweet or send on a WhatsApp forward a novel. So just to slow it down and make it longer, something else, that is what I was also doing, you know, in, in terms of form, just stretch it out, stretch it out and make it complicated, let it go through a detour so that it doesn't, is not exhausted by your tweet. Yeah, I, it, it's such a, I understand that there's very little that um, the average person can do about the dissemination of fake news. But I, I do like the idea that slow news, if we take the time to read the long article, <laughs> Yes, that is not as easy to sum up in uh, on a Facebook post. Um, that 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 there is utility in that. Yes, and of course there is utility also in something being very succinct. I mean, you know, I'm sure. utterly, you know, I'll honestly, I kind of appreciate some articles that come with this little notation on the top that says three minutes and three minutes to read all. <laughs> eight minutes and you know eight minutes is better than sometimes 27 minutes you know sure. what I'm saying so uh, time is scarce it is true but what is it doing to us you know um, and what how do we destroy ourselves I so I thought you know so so yeah yeah I think I think well when <laughs> When, when, when the pandemic started, people, you know, you, you, you know, there were instructions on how to wash your hands. Yes. When I saw the poster that said, uh, wash your hands the way Lady Macbeth was, you know, washing your hands or something. I thought, you know what? 
literature will save our lives. And so when I was writing, I was thinking of other strategies other than finding, you know, an instruction in Lady Macbeth about how to understand the news, how to make connections, how to respond, how not to be passive under the onslaught of news. And of course, the other uh, context in which you talk about the word novel is that the idea that perhaps misinformation is spread um, more if there is quote unquote novelty in the Yes, end. yes. What happened was, Mar Maris, what happened was that there was this research from MIT that said bots spread fake news, but they also spread quote unquote true news. The thing is the bots spread both kinds of news at the same rate while humans spread fake news six times faster. So I got in touch with the researchers and asked, you know, WTF. And they said <laughs> that humans do this because fake news has this aspect of what they called that it is novel. And I thought, man, I'm writing a novel, <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't think my novel is going to go viral in the form of a nasty rumor that is spread by someone, you know, how, and I thought, uh, so it is a little bit of a meditation on that too. And to think about how to make something new, how to, uh, and I think that is a part of an artistic imperative that one must, that we all share how to make something new, except not to have the newness that is the newness of that radioactive thing called fake news. Yes. You know, how to do something else, how to be creative in a different way. And I'm not saying my novel is the answer, you know, no way, but that <laughs> is what I was trying to foreground as a goal. Yeah, and, and I love um, you quote Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, in, in the novel, and I'm going to read you this quote. Please, please do. Yeah. In journalism, just one fact that is false prejudices the entire work. In contrast, in fiction, one single fact that is true gives legitimacy to the entire work. And that to me seems like a main question of the book you wrote. Yes. Now, the context in which you were saying that, I think it's a Paris Review interview, I can't remember now. Yes. You know, you read these things and then you think, you've got a notebook, you note it down, and then you forget where the hell you took it from. And then yeah. in my case, you sometimes forget that you noted it someone else's thoughts down and then you put it in your novel. But this time at least, I remember it was Marquez. And the context in which he said that was that you're describing a woman, a young woman ascending, levitating. She's holding a bed sheet and she's just rising into the air. But if you have described the print, and this is how my imagination remembers it at least, that if you have described the print on the bedsheet correctly, people will believe you. While in journalism, if you say something wrong, let's, you know, or false, that makes the whole thing suspect. It's no longer. So um, I don't know whether you can hear the ringing of the house phone. If you can, I'm sorry. We'll be yeah. able to uh, oh, okay, cool, 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 that cool. out. Um, so, so um, I mean, I do want to say that fact checkers are the angels guarding the, the doors of literature. Indeed. You know, that's, that's, that's certainly a point I want to make because um, 
Even when the pandemic started, the WHO said that the greatest danger now was an infodemic because there was such a spread of disinformation. And I think that is the, you know, the reason why our children cannot go to schools or have to still work with masks, et cetera, is because people have given in to misinformation. And so that as a major threat to our world existence is something that, yes, um, I'm trying to uh, engage with in the novel. And, and so your protagonist, Satya, yes. Yes. is both a novelist and a journalist. So you see him trying to grapple with both the lies of the of journalism and the truth of the novel perhaps yes yes, yes. um tell me about how i mean it, tell me about your um role as the voice of satya <laughs> yes okay okay yeah. I, I see the diplom i see the soft silken glove into which that uh, question has been yeah, yes, uh, yes yes sometimes well, I understand. yes yes um, <laughs> um, I really think I have a great affinity if I try to think of a persona through which I want to investigate the world I have a great affinity for the idea of someone who's a journalist but is also telling stories cool so that was my attraction I gave my narrator the name Satya because Satya is uh, from Sanskrit also means truth, by the way. So just a little, like an inside knife. <laughs> uh, but um, what I also have done in the novel is given my narrator, a, his wife is a scientist. She's a yeah. behavioral psychologist. She believes in rationality. And truth for her is one that is tested. It is scientific. And while Satya is interested in truth, he isn't entirely able to ally himself with his wife, whom he loves very much. But she is a serious scholar mm -hmm. who wants to explain to you, for example, that the reason why Celine Dion is played on loop in Walmart is because the sad person wants to cure her sadness by buying something that will make her feel better. And actually, you know, there is some experiments that show that. So that's great, that version of truth. My interest in this particular persona was a projection of my own affinities for less than generalizable truths, for truths that are more particular, more individual, often contradictory and complex. Not ones that given either to the delusion of false ideologies or to the neat storytelling of science, you know, that have a very clear line that if you do this, this happens. Right. Well, you know, in the world of fiction, that should be, there should be a, a much more enormous burden of skepticism. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm, my persona, the one that I adopt is advancing. And I love, I mean, Satya mentions um, the Milgram experiments is, is a really easy way to wrap one's head around all of the storytelling that goes into interpreting data from, from experiments. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I think, I mean, first of all, I, uh, despite Satya's uh, 
how should I put it? A little bit of distance from these experiments. Clearly, he's drawn to them, very much drawn to them. And why not? Let's remember the Milgram experiment was something after Eichmann declares that he was only following orders or etc. The idea of asking of a society around you, let's say New Haven, what you know, what orders will you follow, and to what ends? to what extent was a wonderful idea. I think novelists should also ask that question. Sure. And uh, that psychologist at that time is a storyteller who wants to know if this is done, what will happen? Um, and I am fascinated by the results. And I just wanted to have a whole strand of experiments running through the novel, providing a certain coherence about why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping without making it too, whatever, contrived or what, obvious, to have this other strand running through of someone, almost like a foil to it, of someone who as a journalist goes to a story, for example, that he has covered and discovers whether it is true or not, you know, just to test. He's doing his own experiment, which is both an experiment, mm -hmm. but also, and a storytelling enterprise. Yeah, um, and, and he starts out, his earliest experiment was in ants. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you, you, you tell us a bit about his childhood. Yes. Tell me about the overall structure of the book and, and yes. all of the various facets that you wanted yes. to. Yes, yes. When the book starts, I think the first line is something like, in a little bit, it will be cocktail hour, <laughs> <laughs> which betrays my own uh, like, you know, preferences for the time of the day that I would like to start uh, thinking of wonderful things. Uh, he's at a villa, which sounds a little bit like Bellagio in Italy. Yes. And he's trying to write a book, trying to ask a question who among your neighbors will uh, who among your neighbors will look the other way when a figure of authority comes to your door and puts a boot in your face mm -hmm. so there are conversations and at the villa but he was also trying to recall his childhood or think about things that have happened to him and set it down in chapters except there are rumors at the rumor at the villa of this new virus and soon enough two or three chapters into the book, uh, the virus does arrive and uh, actually the residency is closed and he has to return to America. Uh, before this happens, he has been reading 1984 because he wants to understand how the state is a manufacturer of fiction and that provides another thread in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, and when, he's, when he comes back to this country, to America, where he's from, he's originally from India, but is teaching at a small liberal arts college. I'm guessing a little up, up further up north from where I, I teach. Uh, not Vassar. Uh, not Vassar. Okay. Yeah, a few miles. I think I was feeling, uh, I, I think my my GPS says that he might be a little bit north of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he tells the story of these experiments that his wife has been doing in behavioral psychology. And he has tries to understand love, the stories we tell, he tries also to understand 
because the pandemic has arrived and there is so much disinformation, he actually has a chapter called The Velocity of News, where he, thought, he thinks storytelling is not enough. Let me just present the news. And he invites the reader perhaps to even skip that chapter if they're interested yes. only in story. And then he moves on and we come to the end where he, where we are in the present again and he's trying to make sense of what has happened and Black Lives Matter protests have arrived in his city and his student wants him to write something true because when we begin the book, our narrator has read Obama in uh, an interview. This is why literary interviews are very important, Maris. You, <laughs> well, there are all kinds of revelations. And Obama said that his daughter had been reading, President Obama said that his daughter had been reading Hemingway. All you have to do is write one true sentence. And my narrator had decided, well, I'll also write one revealing lie every day. And this book then becomes a compendium of revealing lies. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the proposed novel of Satya, Enemies of the People. Yes, yes. And, and yes. the project of, you know, how much of that is a part of a time outside this time? Yes, that's a very good question because uh, I struggled with it. Well, I, I, I once heard Sarah Silverman say Enemies of the People and it just sounded beautiful when she was saying it. And I thought, you know what? I want that as the title of my novel, you know, because she had taken what Trump had was saying, which was an attack on journalists mm -hmm. and somehow flipping it or something. That's what I felt that humor was doing it. And I thought, why can't it also happen in fiction? I take that phrase and then twist it around, you know? So I want it to be that. Now, when he, so, so I think, the most generous readers, which I'm beginning to suspect you might be one, Maris, will, uh, will allow that this book then is that book, you know, in a way, in my mind, like I was trying to, yeah, that, you know, because that's what the, you know, how to, how to point out, how to be that journalist that Trump disliked, that contempt for, how to do that work well. I was trying to do that, frankly. I was trying to do that in this book. Um, and what Satya had wanted to write, uh, you know, like when he had gone to meet a police informant who had led to the, whose information had led to the killing of a guerrilla leader. I thought I was being that. So I think, I think, I think I have smuggled in Satya's proposed novel into this novel that um, I and you are holding in our hands. And along those lines, I would never deign to ask you- um, Oh, please what, do, please do. <laughs> what in the book is real and what is not. Yeah, but yeah. what I want to ask you about is why do you think, because this comes up so often in my interviews, why do you think readers feel so compelled to know? Like, especially yeah. as quote unquote autofiction, grows um, in popularity. Why are we so obsessed with what is real and what isn't? I must confess, I would like to know the answer myself. And uh, because, because first of all, I have that sense of curiosity myself. There is a lovely scene in the opening of Ben Lerner's uh, book, one of his books, not the last one, the one before that, where the narrator is meeting his agent mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they are eating i think the detail is hand massaged baby octopus and the agent says you know that story in the new yorker you should make it into a book and i remember asking his agent why did you eat this you know something like that <laughs> she said we have never had lunch no we have never eaten that and then she said that her brother who's a literary guy also felt a little bit annoyed that this wasn't true and then i mentioned this to ben learner i said man and he said well even the non fiction that people consume of mine and where i have written this that did not happen so um unlike ben i'm not such an imaginative person so much of that what you read is is actually true uh but you didn't ask me that question you asked me why do we feel that you know i always thought that my friend david shields when he wrote the book reality hunger mm-hmm. was trying to get to that why we feel the machinery of the novel is something we some of us at least find wearying and what we want is the real thing or something like that that's what his argument is uh i'm certainly drawn to the idea where anyone reading a novel should know how the novel was made how it was like what notes you know there's for example because this is audio no one can see but here there is and a clipping from the new york times you know i want to know i want the reader to know that i saw it i cut it out i pasted it and then i have put this in the novel you know that sort of thing um i think wouldn't you if you were surrounded by so many fabrications if you were aware grossly aware of the existence of fox news wouldn't you want to know fuck what is the ground i stand on you know which has become really an existential crisis for us we do not know you know what are so, facts what's what reality what's real so so there's a great desire for that and i think writers maybe those who are called writers of auto fiction want a little bit of to tear off the idea of everything being only drawn from inspiration in the silence of some room at some particular magical hour but instead say this was cobbled together from the ruins of my past and my present hmm. you know in my case it certainly Wonderful. was you know and then on the other hand i feel like it was a pretty new revelation for me in the past couple of years to understand that because in book publishing um fact checking is not a part of the process in nonfiction that so much of the nonfiction that i took to be capital t truth was perhaps not yes. and you get at that too in terms of even just um talking about the scientific data yes yes well i have to tell you when my last novel came out my editor in chief at knof to whom this yeah. new book is dedicated said to me uh, you have to meet our lawyer uh, we need to figure out some things and that was because the lawyer wanted to know if some of the women that my narrator was writing about were real people and whether the letters that had been quoted mm-hmm. were inventions and i had to assure her that i had a pretty healthy imagination in this case i have to tell you no one from knof said that i had to meet a lawyer 
but the Indian publishers had me go through everything because I think the threat of an immediate government response to the ruling party being pilloried in the way it is will be, you know, the, the, that threat looms large. So the experiments, but every reference to the news had to be vetted. Uh, so that's a different kind of fact checking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, since I invoked Ben Lerner, there is a piece somewhere, and I tried to include that in the book, but I think the editors cut it out, where he said that in a, if you write in a novel that the X, he says somewhere that X is the largest animal in the marine world. Mm -hmm. And if you're wrong, the fact checker will say, this is wrong. And was he saying that it wouldn't be allowed to stay if it is fiction? I mean, you know, that would be an interesting question. Right. Um, I just think that in a book that um, takes aim at misinformation, I would have been acting in bad faith if particularly the scientific data I used or, any, or the news I used was also misinformation, you know? So I've had a certain, practiced a certain fidelity to the truth here. Yeah. And even, uh, I find it so interesting that the right has adopted um, so much of the rhetoric of Orwell. Um, and you, you yeah. reminded me in this reading that 1984 is like, experimental and yeah. yeah that was a discovery for me yeah. i was also um, being defensive yeah 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 um but when i when i think back this is a book that so many of us read in grade school i mean you know intermediate school and um it's weird <laughs> yeah yeah you know but that remark from maris makes me think you're you're, you're, so, you're absolutely correct i'm about especially about the right wing also using Orwell to say, oh, this is big brother when you ask us mm -hmm. to get vaxxed or to wear masks. Mm -hmm. and because that brings me to my central question, which is that when the right does that, they are practicing bad faith. Yes. And my appeal would be that in fiction, even if I have invented some things, it is not in bad faith. It is precisely in an effort to expose something and to defend something, to defend a very precarious notion of truth that is under attack. And therefore, I actually am different from those folks. And that issue, I don't know, I didn't know how to illuminate, but you have given me now a chance to at least here say it, that it is bad faith these protestations by those who say they are defending the truth is an exercise in bad faith. And it is against bad faith that we must produce literature. Literature becoming a refuge for something that is where you condemn yourself sometimes, but do so precisely because you do not claim to be authoritative, you know, or you do not claim to be pure. You do not claim to be right. Uh, but instead you claim, you know, you, you, you claim, you, you, you take the side of truth mm -hmm. and say, but I do not know, or while these people are, each one 
I mean, all. <laughs> I don't know whether you have family member who send you WhatsApp forwards, but my God, <laughs> the amount of things that are spread with such complete conviction, you know, it beggars belief. Yeah, I, I, um, I deleted Facebook finally. Cancelled my. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you know, Satya discovers from a report in the New York Times in my book. Yes. That if there's a power outage and Facebook is not available, then it shows that, oh, the riot did not spread there. You know, <laughs> and all these studies show that if Facebook is available, you know, there's a rise in the number of riots or attacks by right wing in Germany in, on refugees. That's amazing to me. And then very quickly, I mean, one of the other things that you do in the novel that we didn't get to talk about that much was draw direct comparisons between what's happening in America and what's happening in India now and what happens under authoritarian leadership either way. Yeah. Yeah. My somewhat controversial claim in an interview I did the other day was to say, because the sun rises first in India, what will happen in India will happen then in America. Mm. So that I wanted in a, what would seemingly be a quasi-nationalist mode, claim to claim that we are not backward in India. We are actually more forward than you. All the barbarities we are practicing at home, you guys will soon inherit and follow. Uh, and indeed, it is, you know, Mike, the prime minister of India uh, claims that if you do this, if you come out and ring your bells at this time or if you attend or the leaders of that party claim that if you uh, attend, if you come and get a dip in the holy river, COVID will never touch you. And then our president at that time said that, you know, if you take in this and if you shine a light, hydro, how do you pronounce it even? If you take this medicine, you will be, you know, or now this belief in, what is it? Horse, what is it? Yes. <laughs> And yes. it's amazing. So, yes, I, I uh, so not only are there parallels, I want to say that I'm very much eager in following what is happening in India because I think that is the future of America. That's perfect. This was such a delight. Um, Thank before you. you we go, would you like to recommend some books for us? Yes. I, I, I don't know whether you participated in this. Um, oh, I, I wanted to. Yeah. So I'm again reading it. Uh, hey, what thought, is it? Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Tolstoy together. I'm rereading it. I'm rereading War and Peace because, you know, in the middle of the pandemic in March, Yu Yun Lee had this brilliant idea that we should yeah. read something long that would hold our lives together, uh, whose structure and movement would hold our lives together. And I had never read War and Peace. And so it was a great thing to do also because I must insist because others were reading with you. It was a part of being, of being a part of a worldwide literary community. Mm. So that was wonderful. So I want to recommend Tolstoy together, just as a way, whatever is recommended for each day, just 10 to 15 pages. If you read it with that, if you read War and Peace with Tolstoy together, you will have a very modest goal, and you will have wonderful insights offered by readers everywhere. 
my book, A Time Outside This Time, is a way of writing about the, what is in the news. And so Francine Prose's book, The Vixen, I thought, you know what, I'll read that. And in fact, I'll ask her to be on a panel with me. And then the folks at Brooklyn Book Fest had the same idea. So now we are meeting twice. But this is an amazing book because I tried in my book to approach the news somewhat seriously and try to record it faithfully. Francine had the remarkable idea how to make something tragic also into a sort of a caper, you know? You know, so some, someone writing about the Rosenberg case, but how to, how to make it a story that is also comedy because someone is trying to write a bodice ripper about the Rosenberg. This is an amazing book. So I, I loved it. I've just finished reading the burning, uh, the burning Girl by Claire Massoud. And my daughter just went to college. And oh my God, mm. to be in the skin of a young woman dealing with all sorts of things, I thought that was done beautifully. To be able to... So, you know, all writers of autofiction should take note how to step outside your narrow subjectivities and the comfort of your own self and, and, and enter that zone of difference. And lastly, Richard Powers' book, mm -hmm. Bewilderment, I'm reading it, and you think the world, of course, is a hellish space, a space of extinction. But if you're smart enough, like Powers is, you're going to have a way of rescuing the world. If there is a sign of redemption and it's like, oh my God, if you have empathy and if you have erudition, you will actually work together with others to save the world. Or that is the hope I'm glimpsing. I'm midway through it. I'm like, oh my God, so painful. And at the same time, such a nice struggle to understand the vast cosmos that we inhabit. Oh, I could use a little hope right now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thank you, Maris. I was looking forward to this and I'm so happy we got to talk. All right. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.